0: Block Talk Radio Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented talk radio show and podcast. Each broadcast, we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, this month, we have two uh, members of a, uh, an organization, uh, NWEA, the Northwest Education Agency, um, and uh, based out in Oregon. And they are Dr. Uh, Megan. Kufeld, and Phoenicia Hubbard. Welcome, both of you.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
0: So glad to have you. Thanks, Um, mm -hmm. And to our faithful listeners, welcome back, and thank you for being a part of our family of over 5,000 listeners every month. And to our new listeners, we're glad to have you and glad you've joined us. Uh, So uh, Megan is a, a researcher and works on a number of of uh areas uh, related to longitudinal growth modeling, achievement gaps and summer learning loss, um, her work has been featured in Education Week and uh, applied psychological measurement um, and so um, we're we're really excited to hear a little bit about the research that uh, uh, on this topic, and we have also Finisha Hubbard who is a professional development specialist with NWEA. Uh, She's a former middle school math teacher, instructional coach, workshop facilitator, and consultant. Uh, She is actually um, the content designer for the professional learning design team at NWEA. And so uh, I think the, the conversation today will be really helpful to a number of our uh, leaders out there, but also to uh, instructional coaches and and others who will have some work to do um, it coming up really soon when we figure out how we're going to get back into schools, but also um, work that they're doing right now. And so I just wanted to start out with um, asking uh, Megan if you could tell us a little bit about NWEA, what you do there, and what it's all about.
1: Yeah, so NWEA is an organization based in Portland, Oregon that works with school districts all over the country as well as some international schools. And we partner with districts to help them understand assessment needs. And our flagship product is the MAP Growth Assessment, which is given to something like 10 million students every year. And it's an interim assessment, so it helps students both understand where they are to, to um, really hopefully achieve gains in math and reading and science uh, throughout the school year, so not just like at the end of the year when summative tests are given, our, our, our assessments given typically in the fall, winter, and spring and provides immediate feedback to students and teachers about where they're doing relative to their uh, state standard content standards.
0: Oh I see. So you so you're working directly with schools. So is that both from a research perspective and practice? So you're researching different aspects of uh of growth and learning and then you're also implementing programs. Is that is that accurate?
1: Yeah, so we, we both do kind of high level research, uh looking at kind of national trends in learning. We worked specifically with districts to to meet the needs of the district research. So sometimes, you know, we work in partnership with school districts to evaluate programs Mm -hmm. that are going on or really understand student growth in the context of the local district. And then we also do a lot that Fenicia can talk about in terms of working with teachers and and school officials, uh, administrators to really help them understand the data and plan for uh, improvements for student learning.
0: Sure, sure. Fenicia, tell us a little bit about the work you do with NWA.
2: Yeah, sure thing, Brian. So at NWEA, I work with a professional learning team. And what we do is support educators, district leaders uh, nationwide and internationally. You know, we have a responsibility to help educators really make and measure their impact on student learning. And so we do that through problem solving and creating opportunities that really impact growth. Through our professional learning, whether that's uh, mm-hmm. in-person coaching sessions, virtual coaching sessions, um, workshops for teachers that really help them understand how data
0: impacts high-quality instruction. hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, tell us a little bit about what summer summer learning loss is, um, and and I guess you know for for the audience. Uh, understanding what summer learning loss is uh, a step further is what does the research say about the existence of summer learning loss? Um, what what uh, is it that we should be aware of um, related to it?
1: Yeah, so there's um, you know summer learning loss is something that people have thought about and worried about for. Hundred years now, basically, for as long as we've had kind of assessments that look at students' learning and growth. um it The summer learning loss, or sometimes we call it summer slide, is the phenomenon where kids actually return to school in the fall having forgotten some of what they had learned in the previous mm-hmm. year. So we often see return to fall scoring a little bit lower than they had in the spring. Um, and this is something that, you know, it, it, in some ways isn't surprising. We kind of know if, you know, kids are out of school, they're not engaging with academic materials. Once you're not doing something for a while, it's easy to start kind of forgetting some of the things that you've learned. And, one of the interesting things about summer learning loss is that there's actually a little bit of debate in the, in the research field about how big of a problem this actually is. It's not something that's a totally settled topic that everyone kind of agrees it's happening and agrees that, you know, which students are most vulnerable. There, there's been a lot of kind of older research that really indicated that we had to worry a lot about lower income families really falling behind especially in reading during the summer, and that that was the summer was really the period where inequalities were widening between student groups, but that's mm-hmm. not actually been replicated as much during uh, in, in more recent research, including some of the research I've done. We actually find that of many different types of groups of students are vulnerable to losing ground during the summer if they're not engaging mm-hmm. with you know, reading or doing academic, some sort of kind of thinking about the academic process uh, over the summer that it's not necessarily something that we we really need to worry about only for a certain group of students. Um, mm-hmm. but that you know that being said, when we, we talk about summer slide really in, in terms of academics, but we also know that summer, you know, during a traditional summer is a time for growth in other domains as well. So I definitely when I talk about summer loss, I try to put that caveat in there that you know thinking about it, academics is important, but for many students summer is a period of creativity and all kinds of other interpersonal and intrapersonal development that's really important and a little bit harder to quantify than some of these academic skills.
0: Sure, sure. Um, you know, an interesting question that comes up for me is, um, is there kind of a, a secret or a, a threshold um, where, and in terms of amount of time, um, is it that after four weeks? Is it after eight weeks you see it? Is there a relationship between how long, students are out and how much slide actually occurs. Uh, do you have is there research on that?
1: Such a great question, and it's actually one of the big mysteries um, because we don't really see, you know, th- there's kind of the traditional summer break, which for most school districts is two to three months long, and then there's the, you know, year-round schooling where kids are sometimes out of school for two or three weeks, and they go back in, um, and what we don't really know is We know that the kids who are in extended school years, the school years who are longer than the the traditional school year often do better, but we don't really know what that threshold is where, you know, if once they're out of school for four weeks, they've forgotten everything or, you know, it really, you know, learning loss is happening at some sort of linear rate. So the longer they're out of school, the more they've lost. That's something that we just don't have good answers to right now, but it's Mm -hmm. super pertinent, especially when we're thinking about forecasting the impacts of COVID, it becomes mm-hmm. really pertinent to understanding kind of if this is a six-month summer break, is that going to be twice as bad as a regular summer sure. break? Or is it going to be more than that? Because it may be compounding over time. We just
0: don't sure. Really know. Sure. Phenicia, tell us a little bit about what you see informally. Do you see any uh, relationship between what's happening uh, with students, depending on how long they 've been out, what kinds of activities they engage in, uh, I think it's a really good point Megan that you make about creativity, where there are other aspects of development that can and often do happen during this time uh, unfortunately that 's not the way a lot of times people look at um, what what progress means in uh, academically but um, uh, Phenicia, what do you see even even just kind of observational that you see?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Brian, and really good points that Megan brought up. One thing that Megan touched on was beyond the academic, what's happening to our young people. And I think if we put a term to what we're experiencing and expand it outside of the summer loss, we're experiencing interrupted learning. And interrupted learning is essentially where you have learning that is occurring irregularly, because you're having breaks in things that were established, um, like established routines that are academic, that are social, that are emotional, um, and even physical needs that some of our young learners have. And so when we think about the impact of interrupted learning, it's substantial for all students, but it's really impacting students who had previous interrupted learning that we don't often talk about in education. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that can look like uh, traumatic experiences that our young people bring to the classroom every single day. So Interrupted Mm -hmm. Learning is compounded a lot
0: more right now. I see. Well, that's a a perfect segue into what was going to be my next question, uh, because last week we had a researcher who uh, didn't say that uh, summer learning loss um, doesn't occur, but said that we might not be able to extrapolate the research on summer learning loss to what's going on with the COVID pandemic because of all the other uh, things that are going on. And I know, Phoenicia, uh, you're doing some work with with teachers to mitigate summer learning loss. But what do you, from, let's start first with the research perspective, um, what do you think some of the key differences are in In between what's happening with what's going on with the, the, what schools and parents and others are doing with the COVID uh, pandemic and what ordinarily happens that might not uh, be the same during an ordinary summer slide
1: we know that this is a really unprecedented event and there's so many different aspects of what's going on right now that could kind of move the needle in one way or the other um, towards whether kids are more likely to lose ground during this period. We know for instance that school districts have just done this, incredible rollout of virtual instruction across the country with almost no preparation, you know, just responding on their feet to not only try to think about instruction, but also providing food, providing devices, just this huge effort that went into providing different levels of instruction. But we also know that, you know, so, so in that way, there's, there's a big difference between summer, because typically most kids are not receiving any form of instruction or any form of check-in with teachers. We also know that there's pretty big disparities across the country in who has access to computers, who has access to Internet. And so in that regard, you know, despite the best efforts of school districts, we know that many students aren't being reached because they don't have access to computers or Internet at home. Or maybe they have a computer, but it's being shared across three students in the home. And so in that regard, you know, we, we expect that inequalities will probably widen during this period in a way that mm-hmm. we don't see in typical and then on the other direction this is also an extremely traumatic event for many families. Many families are facing you know loss of income, potentially unemployment, you know eventually potentially homelessness and the families are you know the, the stress level of many kids and families right now is just through the roof that kids are at home they don't have their normal routines they can't socialize they don't necessarily understand the situation that we're all in And so on the in the other direction it could actually be, things could look worse than a typical summer if, you know, all of these kind of stress and other traumatic events are compounding in students' lives. So, you know, there's all kinds of different ways that this goes and it's just hard to say right now um, in terms of kind of how much we predict academic loss, how much the school district efforts that are just really extraordinary and parents stepping up and doing home instruction can counteract some of the the really big challenges that also
0: exist Mm -hmm. right now. Mhm mhm thank you thank you very much uh for those of you who may have just tuned in you've reached the Perkins platform and today we have um two members of the staff at NWEA out in Oregon uh talking to us about um, summer loss and the extent to which some of the the academic um um progress that students may have made uh, might be Um, diminished uh, during this time Um, and talking also about um, what kinds of things uh, both parents and educators might do. Uh, For those of you who might be interested in calling in, uh, the number is 657-383-1481. Again, 657-383-1481 with your questions or comments. And so I, I think it's a good point to now just kind of um pivot a bit and talk about those things that people can do I I'm, I'm I'm really interested uh, uh Megan also in hearing if there's any research you've done about the kinds of things that students do um and uh, to mitigate um what the research is saying about uh, the kinds of things that make a difference during the summer, and perhaps we might be able to implement some of those. And then, um, Phoenicia, I'd love to hear uh, what you um, what you recommend also that happens uh, um, in the summer for for uh, two parents and even for summer summer programs that are designed uh, for this. So I'll start with you. Um, Megan a little bit about if there's research out there about the what works what's what's a good what are good strategies and then Phoenicia, um, uh, hear from you about what you actually are recommending
1: so well just to kind of start out by saying there's summer is a bit of a we, we have some kind of general strategies, but it, it's been hard to kind of nail down exactly what it takes to stop summer loss. You know, a lot of research has happened in reading programs, whether that's kind mm-hmm. of in school-based programs or programs that send books home to kids. And basically, we find that if kids have age-appropriate, engaging reading materials – that, you know, particularly younger kids, that that can make a huge difference in preventing summer slide. And there are many cost-effective programs that that work with school districts to provide engaging reading programs, as well as through public libraries. I think public libraries are a great resource, and many public libraries also provide food programs during the summer and try to bridge the kind of food needs and reading needs that many kids face. Helping kids in math is a bigger challenge, and that's something I think we have less research on: is how to really provide engaging math materials because that's often something kids don't really want to think about very mm-hmm. much during the summer. I mm-hmm. think that's where we we have a big need to think about how we help kids do math in a summer in a way that's not tedious and challenging for many students to complete.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to I wanna, sure you want to you know, personal mm-hmm. I- I'm sorry, Brian. Megan keeps bringing up all these great points that I definitely want to touch upon. And so the Mm -hmm. piece about engagement is really where we want to focus our attention right now. When you think Uh about what educators do, what administrators do, you know, our work really involves keeping students engaged. And the world has been a really traumatic place for a lot of students these last few months. We'd have to think about how school was essentially a wraparound provider for a lot of students. But now Mm -hmm. what we call typical and what was a typical day and what students were used to, those routines and structures, it's drastically changed. And so Mm -hmm. we have to think about how do we keep our students engaged in this new learning environment? Um, And one way to do that is to understand the extent to which our students have actually been impacted. So we want to start by really unpacking their impact, you know, uh, not only academically, but socially, emotionally, um, thinking about ways that we can not only keep our teachers engaged with students, but those other stakeholders, uh, counselors, mm-hmm. psychologists. Students uh, rely on those relationships to make their learning experience whole, right? And then mm-hmm. we also want to look at mm-hmm. how students are engaging with each other. That peer-to-peer element is essential to their learning right now. So I think if we focus on student engagement from a, a larger perspective and really hone in on how were we keeping our students engaged before, what worked for us, and how are we going to change this in this new learning environment?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what do you think will be the biggest challenge when uh, teachers come back? Um...
2: Yeah, our biggest challenge is going to be determining where our students are right now with their readiness. So when we think about the teaching and learning cycle, we always want to ask the question, where am I right now? Where am I trying to go? And how am I going to get there? And so because we've had such a big interruption in the learning, all teachers want to know, well, where are my students right now? Because mm-hmm. I need to know where I'm trying to get them. And the best way to get them there is to know what their starting point
0: is. hmm hmm yeah, you know, I, I've talked to a number of of teachers, um, and I've had a number of people who have been on the show over the past couple of weeks and months or so about COVID, and 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 this is one of the areas that has been of of tremendous concern. And I I think for me, a big question I have, and I want to I want to get your opinion on this. Um, but the question that I have is: Is it realistic to think that we can catch up? Will we be able to get this back? Will you know? So we have students who will have lost, uh, in some cases, three months, four months of of learning, um, and and I'm not even suggesting that we we try. I, I mean, I I don't know what the right thing is to do, but I'm just wondering what. Is it realistic when people think back on this, will it be we were able to in the next year, over the next two or three years, we caught up where we those kids should have been? Is it realistic to think like that? What what do you think will be the uh, the attempt um, on part of of schools?
2: I think what we're going to be doing is redefining what we once referred to as typical growth. You know, how is my student typically supposed to perform? Uh, Brian, you, you use the language of where they should be. And so if we're really honest with ourselves, we can, we can all agree that achieving grade level proficiency right now is going to be a steep challenge for a lot of Mm -hmm. students, particularly in Mm -hmm. my school year. So we want to look at, you know, how much unfinished learning do my students have right now? And I want to look at that against my scope and sequence, which is essentially my blueprint for learning and be realistic about where they are going to end up at the end of Mm -hmm. one year, at the end of Mm -hmm. six years. And Mm -hmm. so uh, when we used to refer to typical growth, we might want to start referring to it as aspirational growth and Mm -hmm. understanding that that's going to rely not only on their current teacher, but other teachers. We're going to have to collaborate a lot more because I have to realize that maybe the goals for my students aren't going to be met in this academic year. So I'm going to lean heavily on my other teachers that they're going to see in the future to help support mm-hmm. their growth and
0: development. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so what, what I hear you saying is that maybe that uh, let's say it's easy to think about this when you, or at least for me, very easy to think about this when I say going from grade three to four and five, Um, It gets a little more complicated when when you separate those classes out a bit in middle school and high school Um, and even more complicated when you start talking about students not being in a linear pathway to going from one school to the next. They may, you know, start out in one elementary and then that cohort splits up into three or four different middle schools and then it it you know, spreads out again to six or seven different high schools. Um, So it's, it's, it's pretty complicated, but uh, what I, what I thought about the reason I asked that question is that I know that we often uh, in, in schools that have been historically underperforming, we have often expected of our, our teachers that students make more than a year of growth in their classes it's like we some students come um, in grade three uh, and they might be a year and a half behind um, if we're lucky they are a year and a half behind in some places and so I, that's that's where I was thinking is that maybe that's and I, I like the way you frame it about aspirational growth um, that uh, some students uh, in order to do well um, have a lot of catching up to do, and so that 's just something that's been really uh, on heavily on my mind is how realistic is it um, and will our will our teachers and leaders feel a lot of pressure behind catching students up um, i've I heard uh, so about two weeks ago we had on the show we had the president of the um, uh, council of state school officers say that, um, a lot of states are waiving tests, uh, for, uh, the coming year. And I, my, I just go back to, I wonder how long that's going to last, um, where tests are not being given. Um, I think there are some really good, uh, uses for tests. Unfortunately we don't do that often. So I just, for me, just wondering, um, what's going to happen with, with the way this gets used going forward. And I know you said that um, um, a lot of the way we, I guess, use tests will also tell us where students are, so we'll know how to, how to teach them. Um, but I just wonder how much of that will actually happen. you have any predictions about that?
2: Now, this is a very hot topic, Brian, and I think what I'm hearing is a couple of things, but I definitely want to give some some action items that we can all use moving forward. So what I'm hearing is that this is really a call to action for educators to really look at our materials and our curriculum. You know, what are we using to instruct our young people? And then is that really meeting them where they are? And is it addressing the major work of the standards or whatever is driving our curriculum? So are we really touching on the topics that we need to touch on to address this unfinished learning for our young people? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. on the topic of testing, you know, the way we're we're testing is changing, but it's also mm-hmm. important to remember that teachers keep students engaged with formative assessment and formative assessment. That's that. Those are those minute by minute assessments that are done all the time, um, eliciting evidence to really check in to see what do my students know right now? You know, Mm -hmm. asking effective questions in the classroom, providing effective feedback. Um, the, The things that teachers do within their teaching, that really give them the data to inform instruction. So the data mm-hmm. doesn't always come from a test. That data is coming minute by minute. And so mm-hmm. I think it's a challenge and a call to action for us as educators to really look at uh, what were my, my strengths before in terms of getting that information? How did I formative, formatively assess what my students knew before? And then mm-hmm. how can I transfer that now to our new learning environment? Because that's essential.
0: To um, to keeping our students moving forward. Excellent, thank you. And do you have any suggestions? Can you tell us a little bit about what what do you suggest in addition to the things you've already uh, given us um, that that the that teachers can do to prepare themselves and to be ready when when they are back in front of students.
2: Definitely. Uh, The very first thing that they want to do is get very familiar with their scope and sequence and decide how am I going to gather information to tell me what my students know. That's probably going to be the most essential thing. Uh, What Mm -hmm. types of assessments am I going to use and what data am I relying upon? And then making sure that that's consistent with the other educators on their team so that there is uh, consistency not only in how we interpret uh, the unfinished learning, but then also how we address it with our
0: students. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Megan, um, do you have anything you want to do, add uh, for us around um, how to think about this in a longitudinal sense? What, what, what should we expect?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard to think about how, you know, like you were saying, how to catch students up, given we have three months of school closure, and, you know, the next year's materials are incredibly important as well as the catch-up. So I think that this is is a real challenge that so many teachers and school districts are facing, and we're also potentially facing large budget cuts beyond that. So Mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. you know, one of the big things that's really important to remember is kind of both this question of, you know, what's realistic growth, but also a reminder kind of that it, we can't place all the burden on students and teachers right now, that this is a societal event and schools are going to need support more than ever to be able to meet not just the academic needs, but the social, emotional needs of students. So I think mm-hmm. it's really a time to put the importance of education completely in the forefront of, you know, thinking about funding and all of these other things, because we can't just expect schools to take these big budget hits. And then they'll do these completely, um, you know, incredible things to catch up this three-month period of loss. So, to me, that's one of the things we just have to – we have to really think, you know, measuring where kids are. But then I think we have to think beyond just school and trying to find ways that we can support kids out of school as well.
2: Mm -hmm. um, Because
1: the burden can happen within a seven-hour school day, which we know even in this coming fall could look a little bit different than what we're used
0: to. Mm Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so um, we're, we're just about out of time. I really appreciate both of you. Uh, it's been great hearing your perspectives and your uh, very practical um, uh, approach to thinking about what we do and how we do this next. I uh, want to uh, invite our audience to join us uh, on Friday um, we have uh, Dr. Claire McCarthy, uh, who is a professor at the Harvard Medical School, pediatrician at Boston uh, children Boston Children's Hospital. Um, the topic for Friday will be advice for parents, providing um, uh, productive and uh, productive criticism. and uh, uh, so that should be a really, a good topic uh, for us to, to explore. Um, again, thank both of you for, for being on the show today. And, um, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of, uh, emails, um, and thanks all out there listening. Uh, until next time, go well, stay well.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thank you very much.